Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. Today's scripture reading is from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love towards all the saints. And for this reason, I do not cease to give thanks to you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for those who believe, according to the working of the great power? God put his power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and has made him the head of all things over the church, which in his body, the fullness of him who, f- who fills all in all. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Mike. It's beautiful. Well, good morning. It's so good to see you guys. It's so good to be present here today. Um, what I want to do is just start with uh, the Lord's Prayer, as we've kind of been doing. And so, uh, Jen, can you put that up on the screen, and we'll read through it. So we'll do the—this uh, looks like King James Version today, so that's very exciting. I'm going to stand over here so you guys can see a little better. So we'll say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So today we are wrapping up our first ever teaching series, and we've been walking through the Lord's Prayer. And personally, I'm so grateful for what this series has been sort of doing in my life. Um, And and when I think about just every time that I pray this prayer going forward, and when when I teach my kids um, this prayer, um, and and when I think about uh, just the times in worship where we pray these words of Jesus aloud, I'll, I'll remember this season. And, and I'm really grateful for what God is beginning to do because he's laying a foundation for this community. And guys, like, you guys are a part of this. This is so, so incredible um, that we're here this morning. You know, my wife and I, we had the, the, the good fortune and the pleasure of having a date night uh, a couple of weeks ago. And we were sitting at Despagna, which is literally at the end, Walnut becomes Chestnut. Because if you're in New Jersey, you cannot keep a road the same name for more than a quarter mile. So you have to change it. Um, so Walnut, Chestnut. And if you get to the end of Chestnut towards Nassau, there's this Spanish restaurant. We were sitting on the patio there, and we're looking down the street, and we're just remarking, you know, like, there's a church down the street that meets every Sunday now. There wasn't one a year ago. That in and of itself is a miracle. And you guys are here, and you are a part of that miracle and that work that God is doing over the long haul. 
And so as a church, we wanted to start with the Lord's Prayer because we believe that this lays the foundation for who we are. And this expresses Jesus' heart for us to know Him as Father, to know that our relationship to Him is completely a gift that He's given us, and also for this world that we might uh, be a place that provides daily bread for those that are in need, that we might be a place that harbors forgiveness we could live differently in the world. And so we wanted to start here, and I, I've been so grateful for what this, uh, what this season has meant as far as a foundation for us. I hope you've been blessed by these gatherings, these teachings together. If you missed any of them, you can uh, grab them online. www.ecclesianj.com is our website. All our teachings are available there. So today, we end in what might seem like a strange place for some of us. As Jesus prays, deliver us from the time of trial and keep us from the evil one. Now when you envision the evil one, what image pops into your head? Does he have horns? Like a little pitchfork? Maybe a tail that's long, right? We have all these caricatures in our society. And for some of you here today, you might be saying, oh no. Like, I've now walked into a gathering of religious fundamentalists. Like, surely we know, surely we've moved beyond the idea that there are malevolent, unseen little demons running about, right? And Jesus is sitting here praying. He says, deliver us from the evil one. So if you're here this morning and you think that we are now saying, okay, check your brains at the door. Now you have to enter into this whole new frame of seeing. Can I just say welcome and can I just say that you uh, will, will walk out of here with your brain intact, maybe even, maybe even enlightened. And, uh, you know, we want to look at what Jesus was, was intending when he's saying, deliver us from the evil one. Now, whatever you think about the, what the source of evil is in our world, whether you just think that human beings are terrible and they do terrible things to each other and that's just sort of the state of our evolved selves and that's just where it comes from, or whether you think that there is a dark power that sort of works to subvert the goodness of the world, whatever you think the source is, I think we all can agree that there is evil in our world. Jen, can you put that picture up? This is a museum that commemorates every place in America where a lynching took place. The civil rights activist Brian Stevenson saw that these, these uh, hor- heinous and horrible killings were not being documented, were not being tracked. And he saw that the, the, the way that we refused to talk about our past was sort of perpetuating the cycle. And so he built a museum outside of Montgomery, Alabama. And this, each one of these bars, I know it's kind of hard to see here, each one of them has a location on it where something of this nature happened. And so Brian Stevenson has taken these, these things that have happened, these evil and horrible things, and he's turned them into a museum and really a work of art, commemorating, turning this, this tragedy into something that will cause us to pause and reflect we could think about just this past Friday when I, we all get the news alerts that yet another mass shooting has happened in our country. They, they happen on average uh, once a day. I could give you any number of statistics on human traffic, trafficking, child poverty, incidences of violent crimes, not to mention that we live in a society where abortions are, are a matter of convenience. Again, whatever your thoughts 
on where all this stems from, what agents in, are involved, whatever, wh- whether evil to you is a personal noun, I think we can all agree that it is an adjective, one that all too thoroughly characterizes our world. And when we look at the life of Jesus, one of the most incredible things about Jesus is the way that his words and his deeds always line up. Like when he says something, he lives it out fully. Now for, for me, like I could tell you something on a Sunday morning, be up here telling you all about the beauty and the goodness of Jesus Christ, and you could follow me around for a day, and you'd be like, huh, I wonder, does he believe that today? And maybe you are a little bit like me, maybe you are bold enough to admit it. But Jesus, when he says something, he fully intends to live it out fully. His words and his deeds are completely congruent. He doesn't teach one thing and then do another. Uh, When Jesus talks about this time of trial, about being delivered and harbored from the evil one, he speaks out of the depth of his own experience. And so what we want to do is we want to look at this experience from the life of Jesus. And we see this, we have been in Matthew 6, this Lord's Prayer is found right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount runs from Matthew 5 to Matthew 7. But right before this, in Matthew 4, we see Jesus enduring exactly the kind of temptation that he's inviting us to resist. So it says, in Matthew 4, verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now notice, Jesus prays in the Lord's Prayer that we, his children, those, those ones that pray our Father, would be kept from the time of trial. While Jesus, in his own life, embraces the trial. Jesus is, as the author of Hebrews notes, he's our forerunner. He goes before us. He will take on the battle. He will take on the things that would harm us in order to keep those things from us. And also notice that as we read in Matthew 4, that Jesus was led to this place of temptation, this place of conflict with the devil by none other than the Holy Spirit. Now this introduces an important distinction. I want to do just a little bit of teaching around this before we move into just what are we looking at when we see Jesus standing against the devil. There is a profound difference, friends, between testing and temptation. And the the writer of the book of James, the brother of Jesus, spells this out for us brilliantly. James 1, verses 2 and 3 reads, My brothers and sisters... Whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. James here says that trials or testing is a tool in God's hands, bringing about maturity and endurance. Now, God uses friction and pressure in our lives to bring about a weathered trust in him and a holy grit. James even says this can be counted as joy. So Jesus is saying, you know, deliver us from this hour of temptation. But James is saying that God will test us. That God will use these moments in our lives to transform our relationship with him, to bring us out of these dark nights of the soul. And friends, God is faithful as we sang, whether we are in the valley or we are on the mountaintop, he is meeting us there and he is leading us further towards his heart because that is his heart for us. He wants us fully and completely. But now James goes on. In in the uh, second part of chapter one, he says, 
Blessed is anyone who endures temptation. Such a one has stood the test and will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. No one, when tempted, should say, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But one is tempted by one's own desire, being lured and enticed by it. Then when that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And that sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my beloved. And James here is making a very important distinction. He's making it clear. On the one hand, there are trials. There are testings that God will use, that he will transform. And on the other hand, there are temptations. And he says very clearly, temptations do not come from God. God is not teasing you. He's not trying to be cruel to you. He didn't wire you with this brokenness and say, oh, don't do it. You know, he's not like dangling a cookie in front of you and saying, oh, don't, don't take it. This is not who God is. Our temptations are from uh, somewhere else. They are the product of evil, as James says. Both evil desires from within. And this is what James is talking about. Is our desires, those things that we want that are less than God, those are within us. But also as Jesus prays, he says, deliver us from the evil one. So there's something outside of us that is working against us as well. And this is what temptation looks like, an enticing from within and without. Now, we go back to Matthew 4, and I know we're kind of jumping around, but we'll get into this story just a little bit. We go back to Matthew 4, where we see these two things, testing and temptation, converging upon Jesus. And in Matthew 4, Jesus gives us some paradigms for resisting temptation in our own lives. And friends, you know, when we think about temptation— what does it feel like? I, th- I think we, you know, it's one of those things we kind of know it as we're experiencing it. That, that, that longing, and James describes this process well. You sort of have that thought, and you're like, I could do that. And you're like, oh, I could do that. I probably shouldn't do that. I could do that, though. And James sort of traces this process as a thought pops into our head uh, to, to, to when it is given full birth in our actions and our expressions. And James tells us, he says, we are tempted by our evil desires. Jesus demonstrates that temptation does not always originate simply from within. This is what he says. He says, deliver us from the evil one. Sometimes you're not just tempted by solely your evil desires. It's sometimes that, that Satan or some malevolent forces are working against you. The philosopher and theologian Paul Ricoeur says of temptation, it is a product of the chaos in me among us, in our culture, in our society, and outside, you know, these evil forces. And I think that's a really helpful paradigm. And temptation is really these forces, these forces in me, the chaos in me, among us, and outside of us, converging upon us and colluding against us. Temptation is when we are enticed to submit our heart, our soul, our strength to something that is less than God. We are usually, and this is almost always true, we are usually not tempted by something that is in and of itself evil or bad. But oftentimes we are tempted by things that are in and of themselves good. But we are trying to use them in a way that is not good. Now Jesus gives us a good example here. Jesus has been fasting for 40 days. Now, there is nothing wrong. God has no problem with you having something to eat. In fact, Jesus spends most of his life eating with people, right? 
he actually gets accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. Can I hear an amen? So Jesus is not saying that you have to like be so ascetic and so disciplined. How many of you are type A in here? Oh, we love you. Thank you for your, thank you for your roads that you build and your, all the things that run on time. We're so grateful that you guys exist. Now for the rest of us who find discipline and hard work, to be uh, disciplined and hard work in and of itself, um, you know, Jesus is not saying that your ability to resist temptation is, is uh, subsequent with your ability to be disciplined. No, he's saying it's okay to have something to eat. But Jesus has been fasting here for 40 days. Some of us in here haven't eaten for 40 minutes, and we're already like, you know, when this guy's quiet, I'm going to get some lunch. Obviously, there's nothing inherently sinful about eating. But in this particular instance, Jesus abstaining from food is a part of his obedience to God. The Holy Spirit has led him to this place to contend with Satan. And Satan, as he often does, picks the moment where Jesus is at his weakest to come and whisper in his ear. Satan picks up on this and look at what he says. He says to Jesus, prove you are the son of God. Turn these stones into bread. And look at what's happening here. Satan seizes upon Jesus' freedom. He could do it. It's, it's, it's within his ability to choose, his power, and his need. Jesus is a free agent, just like all of us in here. In fact, as the Gospel of John illustrates, Jesus is the most free person who ever lived because he fully and freely and always does the will of God. Jesus is able, he has the power to turn these stones into bread. Even Satan recognizes this. He's like, he seems like he could do this. And Jesus is hungry. Seems harmless enough, right? Like, you have the ability, you have the means at your disposal, and you're hungry. But the reason that this veers into the territory of morality is that Satan suggests, Satan suggests to Jesus that he needs to prove himself. He says, prove you are the Son of God. Turn these stones into bread. But Jesus knows Jesus knows that he doesn't need to prove himself that to give in to Satan's demands here, to, to acquiesce to this moment, is not to prove his identity, but to surrender it. Because Jesus knows who he is. You see, right before this chapter in Matthew 4, we have a story in Matthew 3 where Jesus is baptized. And as he goes under the waters, he hears a voice from heaven that proclaims, This is my son whom I love. Friends, every ounce of Jesus' ministry flows out of this moment. It is all an echo from this one proclamation. As Jesus hears his father say over him, This is my son, the one I love. Everything that Jesus does, healing the sick, raising the dead, eating with sinners and outcasts, everything flows from his identity as he knows how deeply loved he is by God. Jesus doesn't need to prove who he is, not to Satan or anyone else, because he still hears this echo of his father's voice telling him who he is and telling him how dearly loved he is, even 40 days later. And in the same way, Ecclesia, Jesus invites us to live out of our identity. Friends, the opposite of temptation is not being so far above temptation 
that you just never feel it. You just never feel that pull in your flesh and in your bones to do something that is wrong. That is not the opposite of temptation. The opposite of temptation is knowing who we are in Christ. We do not have to strive to prove ourselves, to secure our identities. The Lord's Prayer begins, Jesus says, pray this way, pray to our Father. Jesus is saying, that same voice that said to me that you are my beloved Son, now says to each one of us, each daughter and son, that we are his beloved. Jesus is inviting us to live out of our identity. We are his. And most of our strongest temptations spring from a failure to remember the simple facts of grace that we are loved we are loved without any accomplishment without any merit that this is who God has made us to be and how do we internalize this truth how do we begin to really soak in this and apply it for ourselves how do we put ourselves under the waterfall of God's love over and over again now it's interesting here in Matthew 4 the only dialogue that Jesus engages in with Satan is, is via Scripture. Perhaps the more interesting thing is that Satan uses Scripture too. Jesus is quoting Scripture. Satan's quoting Scripture. They're both using proof text, trying to, trying to get the right thing. Now, uh, a couple of weeks ago, my friend Rich over here sent me a uh, really funny article from the Huffington Post where the poet Sarah Holbrook came upon one of her poems on the 7th grade Texas standardized test, the equivalency test to make sure that 7th graders are as smart as they should be, right? A, B, C, or D. And she was surprised to see one of her poems on the test. But what was more surprising to Sarah, as she articulates in this article, is that she was completely unable to correctly answer any of the questions about her own poem. The editors of the test had so imposed a meaning upon the poem that the author literally could not pass the test. And as Jesus is dialoguing with Satan, as they're kind of trading scripture verses, this is what's going on here. Satan is quoting scripture to Jesus. Satan is trying to tell the story to the author of the story, and Jesus is saying in our modern equivalency, not today, Satan, Paul describes the word of God as the sword of the spirit. Our ability to resist temptation, friends, is not dependent on how type A we are, as we talked about, how capable we are of sticking to a plan. Our ability to be a people who follow Jesus in the way of freedom, the way of truth, and the way of beauty comes from his gracious pronouncement of who we are, that we are his children, beloved and cherished, and are allowing our souls constantly to be nourished by this story. Friends, like, we have to become a people who are immersed in this story. This story of grace, because it tells us who we are. We are, as cultural commentator David Brooks calls us, narrative animals. We see our lives in terms of a story, and the overall story that we see our lives in terms of changes everything. If our story is that we were an accident, that nobody cares about us, that nobody in our community ever succeeds, so why would we expect to do anything different? We will live out of that story. If our story says that success is everything, that your job, your ability to get into the best school, that your ability to take 
two to three vacations a year and have 1.5 kids that you can support and send to college. If that is the story you live out of, you will live a certain way. But Jesus is demonstrating to us that when our story is defined by who God is, who he has called us to be, his beloved children, and the story of his life with us, that we can choose another way. Satan preaches a false gospel of fear and scarcity. He tries to convince Jesus here in Matthew 4 that he has to strive to prove himself and that short of doing that, that he will not have enough to eat. Scarcity. If you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread, you're hungry. But Jesus responds with the truth of the narrative of Scripture. Friends, when Jesus tells us to pray that we are protected from the time of trial and rescued from the evil one, something similar is happening in our own lives. And so the question for you today is, what lie is Satan whispering to you? What lie creeps in as you convince yourself that you will always be this way, that that anxiety and that fear will always rule over you, or that you will always be known by the darkest moment of your story, or that you'll never quite measure up? Are you believing that you will forever be subject to your addictions and your shame? Ephesians 2, 1 verses, uh, verses 1 through 6 says, You were dead through the trespasses and the sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. But all of us, all of us once lived among them in the passions of the flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. But God, who is so abundantly rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead through our trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And that you have been saved is in the past tense. By grace, Jesus has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. And he is removing the shame and the cycles of brokenness and addiction that so easily beset us. Are you believing that you're a slave to your circumstances and your sins and that God does not love you? Peter tells us that you were ransomed. You were rescued from the feudal ways inherited from your ancestors not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the most precious thing that God has to offer, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He has taken every single thing that we have ever done, every ounce of shame, every every whisper of the evil one, and he has nailed them to a cross, Paul says in Colossians 2. And when you were dead in trespasses, God made you alive together with him when he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to a cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them. Friends, Jesus has made a new way possible. His precious blood covers it all. And when we read the story well, we see that living this life is not about what we can do in our own strength, but immersing ourselves in the love of our beautiful Father, whose love is stronger than death. We can cast all of our burdens, all of our circumstances, all of our fears and anxieties and sins upon Jesus because he has loved us, he has rescued us with every ounce of his being. 
Jesus' last petition in this beautiful prayer is rescue us. Rescue is God himself coming for us and liberating us from slavery. Jesus says there is another way, a future and a hope that is available to each one of us, not because of something we have done, but because God himself has rescued us. And Jesus rescued us, as Peter says, by the power of his blood. On the cross, he stands toe-to-toe with Satan again, with the forces of darkness and the forces of human hatred and violence, and he absorbs all the worst that they can do. All the worst of human evil, all the worst that the dynamic powers could muster, he takes them all upon his body on the cross. He allows himself to be crucified. And on the third day, he gets up out of the grave, raised to new life. And he shows us that there is nothing in this world, nothing in this life, nothing that we will ever face Nothing that is the product of even our own evil desires or our temptations that will ever separate us, that will ever overcome what God has done on the cross. Friends, you can trust that God has drawn near to you. That he has made a way out of these cycles of pain and shame. We can trust that his heart is for us. That his heart is kind. And that he is himself coming near to us to rescue from temptation. And so, friends, where, where are you struggling? You know, I find that for, the, for those of us who, who haven't uh, been Christians very long, or maybe you're, you're, you're not a faithful person at all, um, these things can feel so overwhelming. And if that's you today, can I just say God is, is with you? He is for you. He loves you. And maybe you've never heard that before. And, and for those of you who have been doing this for a while, you've been walking with Jesus and you may have the question like, why, why is it still the same? Why do I still wrestle with the same thing? Why do I still feel like those cycles of brokenness just keep repeating themselves? Friends, can I offer you that Jesus doesn't invite you to pray the Lord's Prayer once? He doesn't just say, rescue us from temptation from now and forevermore. He's saying, God is faithful. He will keep coming to you as long as it takes. He is our loving Father. Those of you who are parents in here, you know. (laughs) You know you would run to your kids no matter what the distance, no matter how long it took to rescue them. And Jesus is much better than we are. Friends, he will keep coming to you. If you are struggling with temptation, there is another way forward. And maybe just invite him into those spaces. Invite him into that space of struggle, into that space of shame, and invite him every day. He does not grow weary in giving grace to you. He doesn't run out of grace. He's got enough for all of eternity. Would you allow him to have enough for you? Let us pray. God, as we, as we pray, um, I just want to invite everybody in here if you're struggling and we're, every eye's closed. God, if, if we have people struggling with temptation or shame and we're a church, so we should. God, as we sit here today, as everybody's sitting here with our eyes closed, um, friends, if you're struggling today, would you just extend your hands? You don't have to raise them. You can extend them right where you sit, put them on your lap. And would you just hold your hands open? 
just symbolically saying, God, I give this to you. Would you just say, Lord, I trust you with this, even with my brokenness. God, even with the times where I have listened to the voice of the evil one that whispers in my ear that I should go this way or that way, God, even with that, God, I invite you in. The psalmist says that you know us completely. That you know when we get up, you know our thoughts, our hearts, our minds, our actions. God, you know us thoroughly. And yet you have loved us with a love everlasting. So as we sit here, Lord, we give those things to you. God, we put them before you in a manner of trust. God, and as we do that, Lord, would we see that your grace is sufficient for us? God, that your heart is for us, Jesus. That you have already rescued us. And that so much of our life is just allowing that rescue to be real. Allowing that rescue to take hold, to transform us, to invite us to a better story to live out of. So Jesus, we give these things to you because you have said, cast them upon us for your burden is easy and your yoke is light. God, some of us have been carrying so much baggage. Would we walk out of here lighter than we walked in? It's in your beautiful name we pray. In the name of the Son of God, the Beloved One, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.